We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fellas, listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to Bills is going up against Kalevon Chase on here, who's also going to be a first-round pick, mind you. And you can see the difference in control and leverage he has in his pass sets versus Worf's. Every step is quick and evenly spaced. He's not bringing his base in too narrow just to gain ground. And most importantly, his shoulders are more opened up to the line of scrimmage, and he's presenting the front of his body as a target rather than the side. That right there is how you use your feet to set deep against speed, while also using your shoulders and hips to anchor against power. That is how you're supposed to play tackle in the NFL. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rock Ball Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was friend of the show, Brett Coleman, on Alabama tackle Jedrick Wills. From his comparison video, Jedrick Wills versus Tristan Wilfs. Yeah, who's the best tackle prospect? You can go find it on Brett Coleman's YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Brett Coleman. <laughs> we are like the postal service, Chris. Rain, shine, doesn't matter. We have a fresh Bills podcast for you. And once Rain, again, shine, or disease. We are here. Chris, we're not going anywhere. Cheers. It's good to see you. Yes, it is. Guys, tonight we have a hell of a show for you. We've got the offensive line section of our 2020 NFL Draft Preview with Cover One's Russell Brown. We want to give a shout-out to Midwestern Fins, a Miami Dolphins podcast, at Midwestern Fins on Twitter. And their Standing Bills logo painting contest. One of the guys who hosts this kind of obscure Dolphins podcast that we've become big fans of. We've actually been on it, what now, twice, twice? Chris? I think twice. These guys. This guy fancies himself as an amateur painter. All quarantine long, he's been making Dolphins paintings and raffling them off for charity to support the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. There's going to be a link in the show's description tonight if you guys want to go ch- check it out. So, 
we retweeted it thinking we were giving him a hand. And so many Bills fans hopped on our, our retweet that he decided to try his hand at a standing buffalo. Chris, you saw the photo. It's actually kind of cool. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. I mean, uh, For a freehand painting with... Yeah, freehand painting. And uh, it's not often uh, you get somebody that enjoys wearing teal <laughs> to draw a standing buffalo. In fact, if we're being honest, that's part of the draw for me, is that as a petty person, I love the fact that there's a Bills painting that exists because a Dolphins fan did it. But with that said... Guys, go over at Midwestern Fins. We've retweeted it. It's out there. In fact, there's already a bid of $50 on it. So if you guys want to get in on it, all the, whatever money's generated from it will go to charity. It, it's, again, just these are the little things that people can do at this point. Chris. See, Dolphin fans and Bills fans can coexist. Not only can we coexist, but we can come together sometimes. Yeah, just not between September and February. <laughs> Chris, there's actually been a lot of great things circulating social media lately. I mean, one of them for me that I've been sticking here with, 100 push-ups. Yeah, I just, in fact, I got to finish 20 of them here in your house before I leave tonight, which is going to be fun after, what, a dozen beers? Yeah. <laughs> it was a Twitter challenge put out there by Bills fan and listener of our show, follower of us on Twitter, Jay Spence the King. 100 push-ups a day for 30 days. Chris, that's not overly ambitious. I mean, how many push-ups do you think you could do? I could do a hundred, but one per day. One per day. Even if you broke them up by the hour. Come on. If you what you did five an hour. I don't. Know. I think I'm like Sam uh, Samson Reinhardt of the Sabers in this. You know he couldn't do a pull up at the combine. I can't do a pod. I, I can't do a push up. And yet you call yourself an athlete. Yeah, superior athlete. Well, I'll tell you what. As somebody who does work out, I've been knee deep in this thing now. I'm not gonna lie. It gets hard. You know, well, what am I on, day eight or nine now? And it's... I don't know. I don't keep deep. track of that. It's not my job. My wife is. My wife has been keeping track of it. She's keeping me honest here. And But Chris, it just lends itself to the fact that this is what people are using social media for. I usually decry social media as an evil. And yet it's out there helping people. It's out there giving people an outlet for ideas, a way to continue communicating with each other, even though we're all locked down in our houses. There's also some other social media nonsense people are using to pass the time in quarantine, and one of them is actually the focal point of the intro to tonight's show. Chris, if you go to our Twitter over at Rockpile Report, you'll see that I tweeted something out today. It involved five facts about yourself, and you had to tag five other people to do it. You know, it's just an interesting kind of a chain tweet thing to keep people engaged and give them something to free their mind with in their downtime. Chris, why don't you tell me and the listeners five things about yourself that we don't know? All right. Well, I just kind of went with uh, five stories, I guess, is what I went with. Okay. Fact, I had a concussion when I was six. This happened at Chestnut Ridge Park. I was playing on a uh, like a uh, Cinderella pumpkin, and I climbed on it instead of in it. And then I <laughs> fell off of it and crushed my skull. <laughs> my friend's my friend's mom didn't know what to do, so just took me home, and I was just uncontrollably puking everywhere. And I remember waking up getting a CAT scan. Folks, does this shock any of you who have listened to the show for long enough or know anything about Chris's personality? Exactly. Number two, I was a intern on Mayhem in the AM, seven ninety The Zone in Atlanta, Georgia. They're most notably famous for that whole show got fired for making fun of Steve Gleason with ALS from the Saints. And then once they got fired, that whole radio station just fell apart 
and is no longer around. That was the downfall of that station. So what you're telling me is you've been a part of not what not one but two mediocre radio products? Yes. Okay. Yes. This one being included. <laughs> yes, this one being included. Uh, number three would be I was an extra on the TV show Vampire Diaries. <laughs> that is a fact. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? An extra on the Vampire Diaries. I How does one become an extra in a show that is popular amongst preteens and... We, we got a, the, I was on season one, I think, either the third to last or second to last episode. You could see my back in one of the episodes. I was wearing a football jersey. <laughs> I think, oddly enough, I was wearing number 69 for Reed Ferguson. Oh, Jesus. But you could just see my back. They were doing, uh, like... That's a, your, that, that was your mo- one shining moment? Yeah, there was like a fall... It was like a scene of a fall parade, and they were uh, they were making floats for a fall parade. And then uh, I have number four here. Uh, when I tried my hand at stand-up comedy, my claim to fame was doing a tight five minutes opening for Nikki Glaser like 12 years ago before she was ever what she was today, and I ate it hard. Not shocking. Ate Not it shocking. hard. Chris, you have such a vibrant personality. I can't I imagine that doesn't lend itself to stage comedy. I know. And then the, uh, the last fact about me, this is like, I guess this is the most fun. You guys can get at us on uh, Twitter, at Rock Powell Report, if you want. Feel free to make fun of me for this one. But uh, back in 2011, right before I moved back here, I was entrenched in going to local concerts. And in in August of 2011, I had a string of shows at the same place, and there was this hot cocktail server that I was I was just all about. And I think the second or third show I'd went to at that bar, I brought my friend, unknowing that she was friends with this cocktail waitress. That I, I wanted to, I wanted her phone number, and so I got to a position to ask her for her phone number, and she in turn said, "Why don't you give me your number?" I gave her my phone number, and then I ran to the bathroom and puked everywhere, like projectile vomit. Wait. I was so nervous. Wait, are you telling me that you're like Stan? What is that, Stan Marsh? Yes, South Park. You yes. threw, you threw up talking to a girl. Yes. How old were you? Uh, this was 2011. I was like 27. <laughs> That's not the only time that this has happened. This has <laughs> happened two other times. It's happened two other times. Oh, Chris, you... There's five facts about me. <laughs> Feel free to get at us on Twitter at oh Rock Report. God. Feel free to make fun of me on Ooh. any one of these. Jesus. And here I felt bad. Uh, Chris, <laughs> I'll very quickly read through my five. One, I can't whistle. I'm 34 years old, don't know how to whistle. Two, no broken bones. Broken fingers and toes, mostly stupidity and sports related, but no bones. I hate olives, but I love tapenade, and I don't know how that works because it's made with olives. To me, that just seems weird. I despise the Patriots. I despise the New England Patriots more than I hate some diseases. If that puts it in perspective for you, it's a visceral hate. And the one that I put on Twitter that started the conversation we're about to have, I was once big-timed, deservedly, to be honest, by ESPN's Mike Rodak in the Buffalo Bills press box. This had to have been, what, three years ago? Yeah. Chris, this was years ago. And 
I've never discussed this story publicly before. I've told you to tell it on the show before. I know, but I didn't. And the reason why is because people have a way of hearing things and taking away from it whatever they want. They hear a few snippets of what you have to say. They create their own narrative, and then they just run off with it and make their own. They take their own narrative away from it, regardless of what the storyteller actually is trying to drive home. I mean, think about it, Chris. Mike Rodak was never one of the most popular people in the world here in Buffalo. He's from New England, right? And he well, he from, was he from was a Boston. New England fan. Yeah, and I people attribute. But here's the thing. He was trying to be objective about a string of really bad to mediocre Bills football teams. And the fans, you know, the overly optimistic fan or the fan who just doesn't handle criticism well, they, they did not like Mike Rodak. And so, when you, Chris, when you're doing this, when you're doing a podcast, you can imagine why I'd be somewhat sensitive to that. That some people out there might misconstrue this story as me trying to attack his, to, to like attack his professionalism or his character. Slander is what we call it in the industry. But the story itself is pretty funny from my perspective. And so for the first time, I'm going to pour a little whiskey on my ice here. And I'm going to tell you folks the story of me getting big-timed by Mike Rodak. Let me set the scene for you. It's August 2017. It's Sean McDermott's first offseason. Russ Brandon. Russ Brandon and all of his infinite wisdom. You know, dude, he's a marketing genius. Say what you want about the man. Marketing genius. Decides to bring back the blue and red scrimmage at New Era Field as part of training camp. The weather wasn't going to be great. Under threat of thunderstorm, which actually happened. Chris. Chris, it got so bad that at one point they had to have, what, seven or 8,000 people who had showed up for practice hiding in the concourses with no bathrooms open, no concession stands open. They didn't know what to do. The weather didn't cooperate. The whole thing was set up to be kind of a shit show to begin with. My only thing from this was that I gave you a, a, some <laughs> production equipment to, to use. And, and some moose broke it. Yeah, some, some dude broke the uh, the holder for your phone on, on the tripod. And oh, I it's hysterical. quite pissed about that. But then I found a replacement thing on Amazon for like six bucks. Oh. So, Chris, this practice rolls around. And I get my opportunity. My first time as a credentialed member of the media. Thank you to Eric Turner from CoverOne.net for giving me that opportunity. I mean, he, Chris, that whole Grandstand Sports Network thing that we tested out there, that was great. And I appreciate Eric giving me a shot at that. So here I am, Chris. I show up. It's the day of. Right? You can imagine what it's like for me as a season ticket holder. I show up. I get to the stadium. And you're allowed on the stadium and field. The, and I go through security. I go through the security checkpoint. They open my bags. They check the metal detect, you know, my bag, my computers. They're looking through everything. They give me a pass. And I put my lanyard around my neck and away I go. And I'm walking around this concourse that I'm used to seeing just full of people. And it's empty. It's a ghost town. I can see the stairs that we usually walk down to get down into the concourse to where we go to our seats. But that's not where I'm going. And it's just alien it's completely foreign and i find where i'm going and i walk up and i get into the press box and chris i don't care what anyone says there's a sense of kind of shock and awe that hits you the first time you set foot in the press box for the buffalo bills at least if you 
Like me, like I went to school for journalism. I understand what sports writing is. I, I understand that I'm not, I understood even going into this that I'm not cut out for the job of being a day-to-day sports writer. I'm not. It was a little overwhelming, but it was exciting. And ultimately it was terrifying. I mean, Chris, I don't strike you as a guy who's scared of a whole lot, do I? No, but that kind of situation can be overwhelming for people. Yeah. And it was for me. Because I got there, and at first it was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. And then it was, oh shit, I can't believe I'm here. I have to get my shit together. I don't know where I'm going. I don't have any of my stuff. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking around at a room full of journalists who are just relaxed. They're getting coffee. They're getting something to eat. They're shooting the shit with each other. And here I am. I'm a hot mess. Yeah, it's your, it's your first time. You're in a room full of people <laughs> that have done this before. It's second nature to these people. But I'm trying to play it off as if I belong there, Chris. I'm trying to play it off like a professional. No, you can't do that with the kind of teeth you have. <laughs> so a man walks into the press room, press box and announces that it's 45 minutes to Sean McDermott's pre-practice press conference. Yeah, they, they address the media beforehand. They give a short speech and then they kind of go in and they prep the team and then they go out for practice or at least for warm-ups before they actually start getting into drills i am completely scattered and i have no idea what's going on even though i've been here for two hours chris i've been here for two hours and i still have no idea what the hell's going on around me i'm just i'm trying to find my feet here and as i'm I'm getting i've got a clipboard i've got my recorder i've got a notebook and I'm walking past and I see Mike Rodak and Matthew Fairburn are kind of standing there by the door shooting the shit. And you can tell like they're getting ready to start leaving. And I'm still trying to pack my stuff. I don't know whether I should leave it on the table. I don't know whether I should stick it back in the bag. And I look at Mike Rodak and I ask one of the dumber questions I think I've ever asked in my life. I look at him and I say, hey man, what way, what, what's the quickest way to get to the press conference room? And he looks at me and just goes, I don't know. And turns around and walks away. Walks out the door. Now, Chris, I'm so frantic, I don't give it a second thought. I'm just like, well, he doesn't know. And I go about my business. So, Chris, being a season ticket holder, you think you know the layout of that stadium? But do you really? All those nooks and crannies that you had to go from press box to media room, I wouldn't know where that is. No, neither did I, which is how I ended up getting not just horribly lost. I came in on the scoreboard side of the stadium. I'm following the hallways, nondescript. I'm, I'm hustling because I think, oh, oh shit, I'm going to be late. I'm going to be the guy who walked like this is going to be horrible. And I open a door and all of a sudden I'm in the tunnel. I'm in the tunnel at New Era Field. And I have no idea how I got there. And all of the doors in the tunnel are locked. You need a key card in order to get into all of them. And now I'm just standing there, just dumbfounded. I don't know what to do with myself, Chris. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, oh shit, this thing's going to start in like 10, 15 minutes. I don't know. I still don't even know where it is. The door in the tunnel explodes open and out comes Russ, a disheveled looking Russ Brandon. Because it started to rain. There's been some thunder. The fans have all been moved into the concourse. He's freaking out. This day is going to shit. And this is his like brainchild. Here comes uh, uh, Russ Brandon with half his shirt tucked in, half of his shirt untucked. He's got an entourage of what I'm assuming are assistants by the way that he was just berating them and just sending them off on different tasks. His hair's all askew. He looks like you right now. 
which is the worst. <laughs> yeah, Chris, this uh, quarantine is not doing well for your hair. No, I can't go to a goddamn salon. It's not listed as an essential service, and it should be because it is essential that I look fucking good all of the time. I feel like you never look good any of the time. I look good 100% of the time. So with that, this train of people just blow into the tunnel, and here's Russ Brandon just yelling at everyone. And I kept some security guard looks at me and just kind of gives me the side eye and goes, hey, what are you doing here? I looked at him, I go, buddy, I don't know. I'm lost. I'm lost, and I just need to get back inside. So he key cards me back in, and I say, I need to know where the press room is. And he gives me some roundabout directions. And because I'm not an idiot, I'm able to take those roundabout directions, and I find my way into the room. So I, I walk into the press conference room. The press conference has clearly already started. Clearly. I, I'm, we're halfway through. Now I feel like a jerk-off. So I kind of quietly close the door and I just take a knee and I get out my notepad and I start listening to what McDermott's saying and I'm taking notes and I'm taking notes. But obviously when a stranger walks into a room, especially the media room, mid-press conference, you draw a couple looks, right? 100% from everyone. Who do I make eye contact with? Mike Rodak. Mike Rodak sitting front and center in front of the podium. And that was the moment that it occurred to me. Son of a bitch. Mike Rodak did know where the, he knew where this room was all along. Why the hell didn't he just tell me? Yeah, because he didn't want you to know. He didn't want you to sit front and center. <laughs> it's now, called getting big time, buddy. Now, now, Chris, in the moment, my reaction was, what the fuck? But I've had, I've had years to reflect on this, Chris, which is, again, the benefit of letting these things breathe a little bit before you actually delve into it on a podcast. Yeah, you didn't need to let it breathe for three years. Chris, let me ask you a question. If a panicky... Sweaty guy who you've never... Chris, I had full flop sweat going. Full flop sweat when I was up there in that press booth. If a panicky, sweaty guy who you've never seen before, and you're not even sure should be allowed in the building, approaches you and starts asking you questions, especially when you're, quote-unquote, at work. I mean, as much work as a media member does pre-training camp practice. How dismissive would you have been? I would have just told you where the room was. Because if I'm Mike Rodak and I see you and you ask me that, where's the press room? I don't think for a second that you're some big shot that's going to come in and take my position as a Bills reporter. See, Chris, you're thinking about this too broad. Me? I agree with him. If someone were to come up to me like that and ask me a question in that same, if the roles were reversed, I probably would have been a little dismissive too. I, I agree with it. And then, Chris, for my own self, knowing I was there for almost two and a half hours before the point where we had to start getting our stuff ready and heading down there, don't you think I probably should have done the legwork to figure out where I needed to be over the course of over the course of the evening? Yeah, if you got there that early, you could have taken a, a lap or two around, know <laughs> know how to get to the press box, where the media room is. Uh, you probably did. You, you might have locker room access. No. No locker room access, just... Field access. Field press, access, press, press, box, access, uh, yeah. press room. Wherever those three areas. Find the field, which... Uh, that should, which I did. Which I established my way to the field. Yeah, that should not be hard. I think of any of those three spots that you were allowed to go, I think the press room would have been the hardest to find. See, I still look at myself and go, 
guy, you got lazy. You got lazy, you got awestruck, and it, the moment was too big for you. It's like a football game, Chris. You throw a rookie out there at a tackle and he fails. Well, the moment was too big for him. It doesn't mean he's bad. It just means that was not the time for him. And so with that, I don't outrightly blame Rodak for the situation. And in fact, I, and I guess that's what years of being able to look back at this situation can do for you. I credit that interaction with helping me make the most out of that night. I mean, Chris, after that happened, I realized that I couldn't just walk around looking at the rest of these guys, professional reporters, who were all there trying to earn their own paycheck. They're not there to, I mean, they have friends, but they're not there to make friends. They're there doing their job. I'm not going to be able to just follow them around and follow their lead. And nor would I want to. Because, Chris, what would happen? I'd follow Mike Rodak around for the entire night and ask him every question under the sun. I would wait for Ryan Lasel from, Ryan Lasel from Rock Sports. If anyone's to blame for this, it's him because he, he showed up late. I was hoping he would be the one to kind of show me around. And he didn't get there until after all this was over. So with that, you can't follow these guys around because then, Chris, what would I be doing? What information would I be taking in or getting for myself that I'd be able to throw out there into the ether that is the internet in terms of content creation? It would just be a shittier carbon copy of something some professional is doing on a higher level. Yeah, it's your job. It's your job just to, I would ask people to know where to go, press room, press box in the field. And then from there, just be an absolute savage and seek out interviews that you want, which well, and Chris, and that's exactly you did, and that's exactly what happened. Because after that, I realized I can't just ask, I can't just depend on everyone around me. At some point, I'm just going to start doing stuff, and yeah, I'm probably going to make some mistakes. But Chris, I'm how many times am I ever going to be in this position? Yeah, you made what was that mistake you made? You just like walked across the field. <laughs> well, that's that's a story for later. But here, Chris. I took that, I went down, and I just got on the sidelines. I said, you know what, I'm not going to sit here in the press box because there's nothing I can see from here, which means I can't, I can't produce anything, whether it's for the podcast, whether it's for the sports network we were trying to launch. I can't do anything, so I'm going to get down there. I spent the rest of the night working the sidelines, and it was really interesting. I mean, I got some great photos. I got some really interesting observations. I mean, we're talking about how the old defensive 3-4 personnel were fitting into the 4-3 system. You can't see, I guess you can see it from the press box, but Chris, it's unreal to just be down there in the field. With the stands full of people, my now wife was sitting there with her cousin up in the things, and she's like, that's my husband down the Bills sideline. That's something that she, that's a memory she'll have for the rest of her life. It'll never happen again, but it was something great. I got some great one-on-one interviews, like you said, with players, some of the lesser-known players in the roster that I was interested in. Like Jarrell Worthy, Ger- linebacker Gerald Hodges, who actually got an interception in that practice. Uh, defensive lineman Eddie Yarbrough, who ended up taking on a bigger role that season than I thought even, even he thought that he might. And then to your point, it's also how, Chris, if I had just been following behind all of these media members and just taking my cues from them, I never would have landed the interview with Kyle Williams that start, that, that kicked off an entire media scrum of its own. Chris, I've never had that experience before in my life. But I see Kyle Williams walking across the field and nobody's talking to him. And I just, I mean, even at the beginning of the audio, I say, hey, notice you don't have your pads on. Is this a rest day? And he was like, yeah, this is a rest day. I don't know the unwritten rule amongst media is that you don't interview players that don't practice. But Chris... It was a beautiful disaster 
because I cut over there to go talk to him. We're standing at the 40-yard line, down there on the field. And people see me interviewing Kyle Williams, and all of a sudden I've got TV cameras, and you've got actual reporters lining up, microphones out. And I knew that if I stopped talking for a second, they would steamroll me the same way Road <laughs> just kind of dismissed me earlier in the night. So I kept going, and for three minutes and what, 80 seconds the clip is, I controlled that scenario. And it was, Chris, it was, it was a mind-blowing experience. Yeah, it's got to be a little bit different because, you know, all, all of the, the regular media members know that, hey, a player that's on a rest day does an interview, and here you are not knowing that, and you're just going up to him and talking, and then they see that, oh, Kyle, Kyle's doing an interview today, and they all bum rush, bum rush you and Kyle, and then even in that situation, you got to... You know, I walked, take the bull by the horn and lead that conversation. You're damn right. And that's it. And Chris, it was an absolute dream of an experience. Bucket list item all the way around. And in all, I feel like I have to actually credit Mike Rodak. I have to. Yeah. Maybe you snubbed me to a certain degree. I've run the story past a bunch of people who work in the media. They have differing opinions on it. But ultimately... That was my inspiration to go out and take that moment and just make the most of it. Like you said, Chris, take the bull by the horns because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm ever going to get this opportunity again. And I'm not just going to sit around and take cues from other people or rely on anybody else around me. I never have, and I'm not going to do it in this scenario. And it panned out. I mean, Chris, if he had helped me and I hadn't fallen on my face in that aspect, I don't know that I would have had the drive to go out and and have the night that I eventually had. Yeah, I mean, I think you were able to take all the lessons that you learned from that night because you've, you've been to a couple of practices out in Rochester. Yep. And you're able to use what you learn at the Ralph. And I was much more confident after that. I kind yeah. of hit, it's just one of those things. And it's a funny story, but the, <laughs> when people on Twitter are like, oh my God, I need to hear this story. Mike Rodak absolutely looked at me and went, I don't know. He absolutely knew where the meter yeah, he was. Yeah, he actually, he legitimately, <laughs> he legitimately did that sound. <laughs> Jesus. But, but, with that said, that's not to disparage him because I don't, I don't hold it against him, Chris. And if anything, it, it made the entire experience for me because it gave me the push to go get things on my own. And so for that, hey, I never thought I'd hear myself saying this, but hey, toast. To Mike Rodak. Cheers. And so it's with that, Chris, that we are now going to switch gears as we get to the meat and potatoes of tonight's show. Which is hilarious because it takes an hour to get to the meat and potatoes of a Rockpile Report podcast now. Yeah, we usually run two, <laughs> two hours, two plus hours. Remember back in the good old days when it was only 45 minutes long? I'm not sure if we had a show ever that short. Always at least an hour. Now we've become like the Joe Rogan of... Uh, Bill's podcasting. Freewheeling conversations over here that take forever to get through. And yet, for some reason, you people keep showing up for it. Thank God you do. And this week, we've got for you the offensive line installment of our 2020 NFL Draft Preview Series. Chris, let's run this down from the top. The current state of the Bill's roster. In cap allocation, we currently have $34.2 million tied up in offensive linemen. It's 15% of our total cap. And with that, we currently have five starters in place, something we talked about during last week's show. I would argue to ask 
of that 15% cap allocation, how much of that is Mitch Morse? Oh, Mitch Morse is a whopping $10 million of it, Chris. He's $10 million of the $34 million we've spent. He's a ton. So with that, I mean, you take a look at the people who comprise this group, and Mitch Morse, he's where it starts. The most expensive person on the offensive line right now, I mean, maybe that changes when Deion Dawkins gets his extension, but you're talking about, the, Chris, he was the prize of free agency for the Bills last year, I think. Would you agree with that? Yes, uh, we needed somebody to replace Eric Wood. Absolutely, and we saw that uh, the, the mishmash of... Ryan Groy. Ryan Groy and something we took from the Bengals. Uh, what was his name? Uh, I can't. Naga, Naga, not going to play you, football here anymore, I can tell you that. If you guys know it, call in. So Mitch Morse played 85% of all of the snaps at Offensive Center for the Bills in 2019, and I think he did a pretty good job. I, I wouldn't say he was an all-pro or a pro bowler, but he did pretty well. For guard play, we've got Quentin Spain and John Feliciano. Spain. The thing I like about him, he played the highest percentage of offensive snaps of anybody in a Bills uniform with 99.4. No, Chris, it's not a typo. He played more offensive snaps than Josh Allen. He had no sacks allowed. I mean, he came here with renowned for his pass protection, and that seemed to bear bear out. Didn't he, he came here on a one-year like prove it one deal? One-year prove it deal, and then he proved it, and it's still a bargain. Yeah, don't even get me started about that. <clears throat> and then one of the things that they used him for was a pulling offensive lineman, which was something that we lost with the departure of Richie Incognito and Eric Wood. We really didn't have anybody with the athleticism to pull that off. Spain gave us that back. And then at right guard, you had John Feliciano, one of the biggest surprises at a training camp last year. I mean, I assumed, just looking at the contracts, that there was no way Spencer Long wasn't our starting right guard last year. And then he got beat out for the spot when Feliciano outplayed him in camp and held down that job over the course of the season. He plays with a little bit of nastiness. I mean, that's the thing he brings to the table. I don't again, Chris, not an, a world beater at right guard. He's also nasty when he's pumping gas. I've seen him pump gas before at that whatever that I like the fact that you're staring at a grown yeah. man pump gas and yet you don't have the balls to go over and say hello to the man. Well, I was trying to figure out who it was because I knew he played for the Bills. You but... just stare at him awkwardly from a distance. Yeah, from the next pump. It must be hard being you on a day to day basis. <laughs> I mean it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, with this sweet hair. Folks, it's a visual the visual joke of an eye a hard eye roll does not go over on podcasts. Ultimately, the thing I liked about Feliciano was he was a gritty player. He had a little bit of nastiness. He was the guy you always saw. Chris, if there was a late hit on Josh Allen, Feliciano was the first guy getting into a scrum with the opposing defensive line, the defensive players. And I think by the end of the season, a a bit of that rubbed off on Cody Ford. You know, by the end of the season, you saw Cody Ford starting to take on some of that nastiness. You know, post-whistle, a little, you know, blocking through the whistle, stuff like that. So... Picking that up, Cody Ford, the tackle group, Deion Dawkins and Cody Ford. When you look at Ford, Ford's interesting because he was the only he was the only starter who had to split time. Think about that, Chris. Everybody else held their jobs down when healthy for the full season. Is it wrong to think that he's splitting time because he's a rookie? It's possible. I mean, Sean McDermott has forced rookies in the past to earn all their snaps. You remember my epic rants about Ramon Humber and Matt Milano? Yes. Okay. He, 
he's has a track record of doing these things, but I also think some of it has to do with what he is as a tackle. He was Chris in the run game. Clearly, he's an upgrade over Jordan Mills. Far and away. When it came to pass protection, he was hit or miss depending on the type of pass rusher. His footwork would get a little choppy, and it just felt like he was too susceptible to being beaten by speed and guys who knew how to use finesse against him. Now, you can chalk some of that up to being a rookie, but some of it might just be the physical limitations of the player. It's going to be really, I mean, this year is going to be big for him in that regard. And then Deion Dawkins. Deion Dawkins actually had a rebound season from the previous year where people said, you know, he kind of floundered a little bit back in 2018. Although, who didn't, Chris? Who didn't in a 6-10 and 10 season flounder a little bit? Uh, yeah, a lot of people. But you might chalk that up to, uh, what was it, his rookie year? He had uh, Incognito next to him. Incognito and, then, and Wood. And then who was next to him two years Clinton, ago? Spain. Oh, well, two years ago it was, uh, Jesus Christ, a revolving door of... Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think that he, with him playing, he played next to Spain last year. It's almost like a throwback to when he was playing with <clears throat> Incognito, having that veteran presence right next to him. and helped. No, absolutely. And you could see that his play improved. It'll be interesting to see if he has any more ceiling left to find. Because again, Chris, you're not talking about a Pro Bowl-level talent yet. So it's going to be interesting to see if he continues to improve with better guard play next to him, or if maybe he's already hit his ceiling, which, I mean, at that point... That's going to make a decision on an extension kind of difficult. And then you look at the depth that we've accumulated, something that we really applauded Brandon Bean for last week. At offensive tackle, we've got what I think is a really deep group. Ty Insecki and Daryl Williams. 58 combined starts coming at various offensive line positions between the two. They've each demonstrated starter-level stretches of play over their career. Injury issues, both of them kind of have a little bit of a track record here. Daryl Williams more notably than Ty Insecki. But Williams has been a somewhat reliable player in the past. Chris, all pro one time, but that's not who he is every single season. But he sure as hell is better than, what, a Ryan Bates? Yeah. Okay. And he also came from the Panthers. We've established this. And on the interior of the offensive line, and I guess the rest of the backups in general, you've got Spencer Long, Mike Bodiger, and this Ryan Bates. For Long... Chris, again, I'm shocked because he's got 44 career starts to his credit, both at offensive center and offensive guard, which makes him highly versatile, which we know Sean McDermott likes. Well, he's not perfect as a starting caliber offensive lineman. I think he's an experienced backup, and that versatility makes him invaluable to this team. I was surprised that they picked up his option for over $4 million this year. I mean, doesn't that seem like a lot of money to you for a backup? It does, but I mean... What can you do? What can you do? You could do a lot, which we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. Bodiger and Bates, I mean, neither one of them played more than 10% of the snaps on offense last year. They're essentially projects, limited both in both versatility and physicality. Didn't we trade for Bates during We did, I pre-season? think, out of necessity, because it was one of those things where we, what, Ty Insecki was in it, went down, then Cody Ford went down, and there was a chance that we might have to have started Ryan Bates at right tackle. Yeah, which is why I think they spent the way that they did on backups. I mean, in this season's free, I mean, in our free agency spending spree, we brought in a solid job of cementing the depth on this team. I mean, ultimately, we head into this season 
We don't have elite talent across the board on the offensive line, but we've got a sizable amount of NFL experience. We've got a sizable amount of depth. And I don't, Chris, I don't think anybody's going to tell you that the Buffalo Bills have the best offensive line in the conference. But they're a decent unit as of today. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, as, as, lo- as long as they're not the 2018 offensive line. <laughs> Chris, I don't ever want to see anything like the 2018 offensive line. I mean, you were intentionally bad. Okay, I survived it. Our quarterback barely survived it. You do that to me ever again and we're going to have fucking problems. So then there's the draft philosophy. It's how, how, how do you as a franchise with this kind of middle-of-the-road offensive line approach the 2019, the aftermath of the 2019 season, the 2020 draft? I mean, Chris, if they have all this depth and they have all these starters, why are we even talking about it? It's the fact that they lack stars on the offensive line. And well, you can win games in the NFL without having stars, The quarterback and running back's jobs are so much easier when you can play at a high level up front. I mean, just ask Sam Darnold and Le'Veon Bell about that. Or any one of the poor schmucks who had to go stand back there in a Jets uniform and just get their heads kicked. (laughs) I remember when I worked in my first job in machining, there was a guy in the shop that tried to tell me that offensive line play didn't really matter in the run game. It was all about the running back. I know. Chris, that's a person that I don't... I think I'd almost have to try to get them fired just to get them away from me. Like, yeah, the other side of the building wouldn't be enough knowing that you exist in my, in my sphere of existence that you're here with opinions that bad. Yeah, it doesn't take rocket appliances to figure out that if you have a decent offensive line, you know, they create the holes for the running back to run through. So ultimately, but, so you look at what the Bills have now. We're clearly not that bad. And last year, we were, I'd say, middle of the road in both pass protection, and we were slightly above average in running the football. But as with teams that try to build through the draft the way the Bills apparently are, if you do it well, there's paydays that start coming, Chris. The bill starts to come due for some of these young players that you've unearthed. You know, these late-round gems, these, you know, guys like Tredavious White. That guy's going to have to get paid. And not just him, but Tremaine Edmonds, Milano, Dawkins, all these guys are up for potential paydays. So with that said, if you're looking at it, not the most expensive offensive line, but an offensive line that doesn't have any star players on it and is also costing you a, a chunk of money that might have to go somewhere else, I don't know, Chris. I think you look at it, you've locked one guard down to a three-year team-friendly deal, but you're paying a lot of money to a, guys who are a collection of backup to average starters in the, in the NFL. Dawkins is due after this year. After this season. And Mitch Morse is like, when can we logistically get out from under that? I believe that? after this season, his cap hit starts to recede. Okay. Or at least his dead money. I don't. I think his cap hit remains high, but his dead money, we could move on from him sooner rather than later. If he, if he doesn't take another step forward. So you're telling me the only money... Money, I wouldn't say money, but term that we have locked up on the offensive line right now. It's Spain and Ford, who's on a rookie deal. Yes. Like, those are probably the most favorable to us right yeah. now. And, well, and you're also expecting to sign Dawkins. And I guess here's the thing. We're not spending a ton of money, Chris. It's only $34 million on our offensive line. There are far more expensive offensive lines out there. But at the same time, it depends on what Ford is, right? <laughs> I mean, you've got $20 million tied up in just center and guard salaries in 2021. 
which is a lot to be paying performance that isn't elite. And if Ford doesn't improve as a tackle and you're forced to put him on the inside of the line, now you're spending money and you're still trotting out an offensive line that's not any more experienced and doesn't function at any higher of a level then, I mean, I guess, Chris, what I'm saying here is it just doesn't make sense to continue paying a lot of money for l- mediocre play or even slightly above average play. If you're going to continue to pay money, which, Chris, you're going to see that number that we spent on the offensive line jump the second we pay Dawkins. Then, then instead of $30 million, we're talking maybe $50 million. We're talking maybe... You know, if he needs to get paid, we need to bring in another center. We have to pay backups. You could be looking at somewhere in the ballpark of $50 million, which is a bigger chunk of the cap. And you still don't have a world beater of an offensive line. So there's value in addressing the offensive line in one of these up two coming drafts. Do you agree with me on that? Uh, yeah, I think if you were to take somebody, you know, we don't have a first-round pick anymore, but if you were to take... Take that second round pick or even a third round pick. I think the way our offensive line set up plus the depth, that rookie would get a year on the bench and to learn from watching. And I guess my thing is with being clearly setting us up to take best player available, I can certainly sit here and make a case that, Chris, what's the old adage? Why put off till tomorrow what you can do today? There's a case to be made that the Buffalo Bills would be well served by trying to find some more depth or replace some of the expensive players on this offensive line right now with cheap rookie contracts. But the question is, what is this class, and does the quality of the offensive line class support that kind of a thing? So to help us answer some of these questions, folks, some of the questions that we all have about the offensive line, we've brought in our specialist, as we do every year, Mr. Russ Brown. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Just uh, sip the Coors Light. What are you guys drinking? Coors Light. I'm pouring myself a little bit of uh, Kentucky's Finest, a little bullet over here. I got whiskey and Coke. We're just sitting. Messy done. <laughs> so, folks, for those of you new listeners who are unfamiliar with Mr. Brown, he is the Cover1.net's national scout. He's an annual Senior Bowl attendee. He was just there this past year, mm-hmm. just doing scouting work, shooting shit with uh, invitees. It's it's. There's a lot that goes into that, and I'm sure... I'm sure it helps the scouting process to actually be there in person, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, you have to you have to be there um, because if you watch practices and you watch games, you need to watch the players, obviously. You got to see their habits. You have to see how they respond to coaching, uh, whether it's good reactions, bad reactions, negativity, positivity, whatever it might be. So it's always important to watch that and see some other trends. Do they get better as practice go on? Uh, do they get worse? Whatever it might be. So it's always a lot of fun. You get to interact with, with other scouts, especially bigger scouts uh, in NFL franchises and stuff like that. So uh, it's a lot of fun. It's it's something that uh, I, I would definitely do every year um, until I can't do that anymore. And hopefully uh, it, it continues next year. He's also the host of the Cover One Draft podcast, and you can hear him live on a radio station somewhere near you because he does radio spots like a mother. (laughs) And I think one of my favorite things about Russ is that he's a Lions fan. So you know Uh. you can trust him because if he still loves football after rooting for that team, then he's my kind of people. Yeah, it's brutal. And I, 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 oh man, I'm so nervous about what's going to happen in like three weeks. (laughs) I mean... They have to draft a quarterback, right? No, no, absolutely not. (laughs) 
Oh, my God. So, in sticking with the theme of the evening, offensive line, your specialty. First, I want to start off talking about offensive tackles in 2020. Now, I mean, let's face it. Offensive tackles are the Marsha Brady of the offensive line this time of year. (laughs) And anybody who says otherwise, you're just misguided. They get all of the love. They get all the press. I mean, what was it? I mean, it's not just we, – we did a cap episode a few – what, a month ago now? Something like that. Over a month ago. Teams – just since 2017, the league average spent at tackle has doubled. So in the last three years, salaries for tackles have skyrocketed. But it's also – it's changed the way that teams approach the draft and the premium that gets placed on offensive linemen early on. I had to go back through draft, draft data since the turn of the decade back in 2010 – only twice, 2017 and 2012, which were historically weak classes, have there been fewer than three offensive tackles drafted in the first round. And at the same time, the retention rate of those offensive tackles in the last few years has been piss poor. <laughs> I mean, look at this. For every offensive tackle class that's hit free agency, free agency eligibility since 2010, there's at least two of them who didn't get a second contract with the team that drafted them in the first round. That's like a 50% bust rate. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what is it that makes scouting and drafting quality offensive tackles over the last decade so hard? Um, I think what it, it really boils down to is sometimes I, I genuinely think just people don't know exactly what they're looking at. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a perfect scout by any means. I don't evaluate perfectly. I sure have my misses too. But I think what it boils down to is just some times you don't know exactly what's being called on the field. You don't know exactly what type of pass set that they're running. And something that's talked about so many times is, you know, like for example, Mekhi Becton out of Louisville, he's going to get knocked because he doesn't have a lot of vertical pass sets that he's ran um, at Louisville because they don't run them very often. At least it doesn't look like it. So when you're watching him, you don't really see a lot of vertical pass sets. Well, if he goes, obviously if he's a top 15 pick and he goes to an offense that does a lot of vertical pass sets and it can't translate, then that's where it kind of goes to what I'm talking about, where where teams struggle to obviously develop the player, but then at the same time, they struggle finding that, that fit and some of the flaws within their game, they don't really, I don't want to say they don't understand it, but they don't understand it. They don't understand how they can get him better. And, and if that player starts to struggle, then obviously the confidence goes away and, and he obviously starts second-guessing himself completely. And so I think that's really what, what happens over time. And that's an interesting number. I mean, over 50% more than likely. I mean, it's that's startling. Well, and that's it. And that's why teams drafting tackles so high. I mean, for everybody who pans out, there's at least one Luke Jokel every single year. A guy who you think coming out of college can't miss, and he goes to a team, and next thing you know, he's a laughing stock, and he gets bum-rushed out of town, and you're going, wait a minute. The player couldn't have been that bad. He was an all-star in college. I guess, to your point, that does speak to coaching, and it speaks to why guys like Dante Scarnecchia up in New England, if you can find a good coach that can work with any kind of a prospect, yeah. that's more valuable almost than just the raw talent that a kid like that could bring to the table. Right, exactly. And that's why, you know, the Patriots were able to develop guys like Marcus Cannon and Joe Thune. And I mean, yeah, they had Nate Solder. But again, I mean, he was an athletic guy that needed a lot of polishing. And 
they made it work for him. And then they didn't give him a, you know, a big contract. The Giants did, and it didn't work out because he went to a different system with a different coach. And it just, you know, to my point, it just, it, he's being asked to do different things and he can't do it. So I think that's what would happen so many times. And I, it's, it's more than likely going to happen with this draft as well. Oh, I'm sure. Now in this year's draft, last week we were doing a podcast talking about linebackers of all things. And our guest, Bruce Nolan of the Nick and Nolan podcast, he made a comment that stuck in my mind. Everyone understands that this class is absurdly deep at wide receiver, or at least seems that way as of today. And so the potential exists for some other position groups like DB or linebacker to get pushed farther down in the draft than they would typically go. But he included the offensive tackle class as a part of that push. And I found that odd. Do you believe that there's enough talent at the top of this year's class that it could tempt some tackle needy teams into pushing off other position groups in order to test that offensive lineman water? Yeah, we'll certainly see five offensive tackles in this first round. Wow. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, and we could potentially see six. It really depends on what happens in the back end with the, the final four teams, uh, with the, you know, the Packers, the 49ers, the Chiefs, um, and who are uh, the Ravens? So if, you know, depending on what happens there, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to see Tristan Wirfs at the top of the draft out of Iowa. He's an athletic specimen. He tested incredibly well at the combine. Um, he's got, you know, versatility. He's a wrestling background to him. So teams are going to fall in love with that. If the bills were picking in the top 10, <laughs> thankfully they're not, but if they were, they would be all in on this kid because he fits their, their mold for, what they're looking for. Sean McDermott loves wrestler, former wrestlers in that background. But ultimately, you know, he's a top 10 pick. You've got Makai Becton, as I spoke about. I mean, this guy's massive human being, 6'7", 370 pounds, an incredible wingspan. He moves pretty well for a player that size, and he ran a 5'140", which is just unprecedented for a player of his size. He moves well, um, and he finishes. He does a really good job there. So he'll be a top 15 pick. Andrew Thomas, one of my favorite players on the offensive line. He's got some balance concerns, but again, a really good run blocker, just real polished. I mean, he might not get incredibly better. You know, the ceiling might not be as high, but again, I still think he can do well with some NFL coaching. It'll, it'll, you know, refine and retool him a little bit. Um, and, and then you've got other guys. I mean, um, you've got Andrew, uh, Andrew, uh, or Austin Jackson, excuse me, I always confuse it, Andrew Thomas and, and uh, Austin Jackson, but Austin Jackson from USC is certainly into the mix. Um, some people don't like him. I know, you know, Eric Turner from Cover One's not the, the biggest fan of him just simply because of some of the issues that he had against some of the, the better pass rushers in college football. But I really like him just because he's only 20 years of age. I think there's a lot of tools to work with. I think he's got good footwork. I think if he can develop a snatch trap technique, he could certainly uh, take that step into the next direction. So you're as talking a, about the top of this draft. It sounds like there's a lot of interesting prospects. One of the things I noted, I mean, I was looking at the Draft Network's board, Nine of the top ten tackle prospects are between 5'6 and 5'7, and the average weight of the top five is 331 pounds. It sounds like this is a massive group of tackles this year. Mm -hmm. Now, does that seem to carry throughout the class, or is that just at the top? No, it carries all the way through. Matt Pert out of UConn saw him at the Senior Bowl. He follows into that. He's from the Bronx, uh, from New York. He's 6'7", 318. He's every bit of that. He's almost got... <laughs> Jesus he, he, Christ. 
he's almost got 37 inch arms. I mean, he's a, he's a legit specimen of a, of a human being. Um, and he, with that arm length, 36 and five eighths, he put up 26 reps in the bench. He's a four year starter at UConn. Um, I, I think, you know, initial quickness, he's pretty quick, uh, pretty good athlete overall, you know, hand placement can get a little sporadic at times, but he's not just, you know, he's not the only one. Isaiah Wilson out of Georgia. That's another one. I think he'd be a fine fit as a right tackle. He's got 24 career starts, um, at Georgia, six, six, three fifty, 35 and a half inch arms. He's got incredible grip strength, uh, 10 and a quarter inch hands. So he's I mean, a he's guy a, I'm, I'm really interested in. Your take on him, what kind of an offense would that guy have to go to in order to – because he's not a first-round guy, but he might be a guy who I think – and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like he might be a guy in that second to third-round conversation. So what is his skill set like in terms of what kind of an offense would he have to be playing in order to be – to your point, you need to fit the scheme. Is he someone who you think fits what the Bills do? I mean, you could you could throw him in there. I just don't necessarily know exactly what you're going to get out of him because he's not the athletic uh, specimen that you want. But when you get into you know man to man situations, you're you know his wingspan is incredible. You're not going to get around him. It's he's like a poor man's Makai Becton on the right side of the offensive line, if if that makes sense. But no, you know a zone zone blocking scheme. It's going to be pretty tough for him, I think, um, just simply because he's not a natural athlete, but he's a mauler. So if you get him in situations where he's got man-to-man, he can combo block, um, again, he'll, he'll chip and he'll get up to the second level, but it's not going to be clean. It's not going to be pretty. But yeah, I mean, he could certainly be a player that they circle to if they feel, and I, I feel like the, the consensus in Buffalo with Bills fans is just simply putting Cody Ford at right guard and getting a new right tackle in here. Uh, just an, an improvement and upgrade, which, I mean, it makes sense. Cody Ford had, you know, 31 total pressures last year. He had a, a overall grade from pro football focus at 52.4. So if you can get something better, absolutely. Isaiah Wilson could be in the mix, but again, Matt Pert as well. And I've got a couple of other right tackles I'm sure we'll talk about as well. Well, and so I guess that's the thing. When you when we start talking about this, you know, being without a first-round pick the Bills aren't in the running for any of the top tackle prospects in this class. Mm-hmm. and it's. But to me, it's also nice hearing that this class seems like it is loaded with top shelf talent because that's that will push. You know, eventually when you hit to the second round, you're going to go down a level. You know, there, there's levels to the talent at every position. And we know that, let's say, Niang. We're going to say, like, a tackle like Niang just isn't as talented as these five guys. So the drop-off from the fifth offensive tackle to Niang, or the sixth to Niang, is big enough that we're going to go in a different direction. And we're going to draft a different position where the value still is. And so with that, you're going to see that that's where you start to see a push down the draft board. The reason that this is so important to Bills fans, they spent the entirety of their season rotating between Cody Ford and Ty Inseki. I mean, literally a 50-50 split of reps almost Mm -hmm. the entire season. And even in the final playoff game, they still didn't trust Cody Ford. Now, if you see a rotation like that happening, Sean McDermott has a reputation for making rookies earn their stripes. But if you're still doing it in a playoff game, I mean, Russ, if you're a head coach of an NFL football team and in a playoff game, you're still rotating your right tackle. (laughs) That doesn't speak to a level of confidence, does it? 
It doesn't, but at the same time, I mean, we're talking about a, a rookie. I mean, this is a guy that's playing in his first playoff game. You have a guy like Ty who's got years of experience, and I think you just got to roll with that experience in a situation like that where you're when you're, when you're on the road, you're in the playoffs for the first time in a while, um, and you're doing things that, you know, you're, you're trying to change that culture. You're trying to build something, and you don't want to rush him into something, especially when you've got a guy like Josh Allen as well who's in his first playoff game of his career. So I think there was just so many variables into into this equation that that's why they rolled with that. It would not surprise me if Cody Ford ended up keeping that right tackle job, but it also wouldn't surprise me if he was the right guard. So see, I, and that I, resp- well, see to me that response is perfect because here's what I see. They didn't bring in any real competition for him so far this offseason. And when you take a look at the Bills' contract situation, which we just ran down for our listeners, regarding not just the right guard position overall, but the money that they have tied up in contracts for players that we all know are not world beaters, the Bills have a decision to make here. Do you invest in the interior of the offensive line using draft capital over the next two years to to, to kind of leverage yourself off of those more expensive contracts? Or... Do you potentially draft a right tackle, slide Cody Ford into the right guard position, and then have, and don't get me wrong, people, that's not a demotion. People have thought that Cody Ford could be a pro bowler at guard. And that right tackle maybe wasn't a natural fit for him. But so in that, you could also then have yourself with two cost-effective rookie contracts on that right side of the offensive line who could potentially both fire at a high level. If you were the GM... Of the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> Knowing what you know about this upcoming class this season, you look at where we're drafting at, what, 54, Chris, and then we're in the back. 86, I think. 54 and 86. Knowing the depth of the tackle group and also the interior offensive line group, what would you do? If you were Brandon Bean and you were faced with this question, knowing what you know about this class, what would you do? I mean, it's... It, it's I. It's tough to predict a a pick for a team that doesn't have a first-round pick because you just don't know what's going to be there. I mean, we're talking about 54 spots and 53 players potentially being gone. I mean, and it wouldn't surprise me if they moved up either. If there's a player that potentially fell, I could see McDermott and Bean putting their stones on the table and saying, hey, I'm moving up and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get this guy and whatever that player might be. But certainly, you know, I personally would go offensive tackle at 54. I would go the, the right tackle at 54. I would bring in that competition uh, just simply because I, I do feel like I, I'm confident in Cody Ford on the right side, but I, I would go with the, with the best, let me, let me rephrase it. I would go with the best player available, which would probably be a right tackle at 54. And you're talking, I mean, Again, if Lucas Nyang is there, I'm jumping for joy. I'm bringing this guy in. The way he played last year coming off of a hip injury and battling through that, that's impressive to me. If he's not there, then I'm probably going with the best defensive lineman, the best edge rusher that I could probably find there. I would consider a corner as well. Um, but then I would I, I would double down on the position. I wouldn't go back to back, but I, at 128 in that fourth round, I would consider a right guard as well. And John Simpson out of Clemson makes a ton of sense for them. Um, an, another one of those mauling, big-bodied guys, 6'4", 330, uh, over 10-inch hands. I mean, this is a huge person, and he was down at the Senior Bowl, and he was consistent. Ben Bredesen out of Michigan, another guy, very consistent down there. Loved his pad level, 
hand placement was consistently inside. Not the strongest lower half, but again, one of those guys that would certainly be there in 128. So I think they could get two quality players or have an option for a quality player out of those two at guard. Um, and then, you know, right tackle at 54, maybe at 86 if you pass at 54. So I'm not opposed to them going offensive line uh, two out of their three picks to start this draft. It did, would, you, did you hear that, Drew? Ten-inch hands? Oh, my God. We want to talk about a hand size. I'll snap. I'll throw this I'll throw this glass across your kitchen. You, you know what they say about those hands. But those hands, <laughs> you know what it means? It means they can pass protect. Now, big it's, socks. It's a big socks. It's funny to me. You're talking about the interior offensive linemen. And how there's depth there. Interior offensive linemen are the redheaded stepchild. They really are when it comes to the offensive line. I mean, they don't get the love. What, what there's only been two interior players drafted in the top 10 since uh, the turn of the, uh, what, turn of the century? I went back as far as, as far as 2000. Couldn't find one. Except, well, Quentin Nelson and Jonathan Cooper, and one of them flamed out. When you look at this class, it doesn't sound like there's any guys who are going to creep into that first-round conversation, which I think is good for the overall depth of the class. And it sounds like there's some players there that might be in the Bills' wheelhouse. One of the things that we have that we struggled as a team with specifically was helping pass protect. I mean, Feliciano is good. He plays with an edge, but he's not great at pass protection. And that sometimes led to A-gap pressure, especially if, if someone blitzed. They can't go, even with five offensive linemen, they can't handle a blitzer in the A-gap. They struggled with it last year. And so with that, maybe you do want to bring in a rookie contract, somebody who's big and physical and can pass protect like a mother right there in the middle of the offensive line. Who do you think projects well to that type of role somewhere in the second to fourth round range of this draft? Yeah, we need a, a, a Wyatt Teller 2.0. Oh, Jesus, get out of here. Wyatt Teller 2.0, Russ, is what we're looking for. I'm surprised they... Traded Wyatt Teller, to be quite honest, but it, it is what it is. If if you guys don't like Wyatt Teller, that's fine. I was a fan of him, but most people you know, were. I I didn't hate it. <laughs> but I'll I'll go with a guy um, that you know second and fourth round might be a little rich for him, but he's versatile. And I'm I'm gonna because I've been throwing a lot of names. I don't want to continue to go back to to John Simpson and and Ben Bredesen and those types of guys. But Justin Haran out of Wake Forest is a player that's very intriguing to me. Um, every single time you watch his tape, he stands out with his, his lower body. His footwork is very, very clean. He checks into the combine at 6'4", 308, um, but he didn't test that well. His, his three-cone drill was only 8.41 seconds, so pretty slow there. His short shuttle was uh, just under five seconds. Uh, he did put up 27 reps on the bench, but again, footwork is there. He plays with pretty good pad level. He, he shows consistency, so... At the Senior Bowl, he was down there. He was doing a lot of uh, reps at guard, a lot of stuff on the interior. So I'm intrigued by him. I think he would be an interesting option um, day three somewhere, and you could probably put him in that fourth-round range somewhere late because, again, the Bills do have um, a you know a, a pick at 128, but they also have another pick at 156. So it's not a, a huge turnaround there um, where they could potentially look at him. But, you know, if – we're talking in that second, third round range. Damian Lewis, LSU, would be another name I haven't talked about yet uh, with you guys. This is a guy as well at the Senior Bowl that was incredibly consistent um, and maybe had one of the, the better weeks just simply because of power, 
just pure strength, 6'2", 327. Um, I think he's a guy that he, he's got versatility. He can play on both the left side, the right side. Uh, this past year he played 15 games at right guard. Um, again, I, I love his his mauling ability, that overall strength. I think he, he does a really good job um, with a good base and, and pad level. So I, I really like him. He could certainly be in the mix as well. See, I like hearing that because here's what's going to happen. Brandon Bean has done everything he can to set this team up to draft best player available. Mm-hmm. That's what he's done. It's how he spent our money. It's how he set up contracts so that even guys who are quote-unquote starters as of today can be replaced as soon as next season. It's just he can take whatever player he values highest wherever he wants to. With that said, everyone here is so playmaker-hungry, and they there's a lot of average fans who don't understand that the offensive line is kind of where a lot of your success starts on that side of the ball. I get it. We've been mediocre on offense for a decade. But you have to do it up front. And with mm-hmm. that said, heads are going to explode around the city collectively if the Bills take an offensive lineman in the second or third round. I could see it happening. Yeah, so it, with and that it could. Said, but, uh, well, and so, I, but so this was, I guess, going to be my last question to you. Given the quality of the class, is this more like some of the more successful classes that we've seen? And in that, fans can take a little solace that, hey, drafting an offensive lineman out of this crop is going to has the potential to bear fruit. Or is this, this it doesn't sound like the 2012s and the 2017s. I mean, this doesn't sound like a bereft of talent class that's going to leave everybody wondering what the hell just happened to him four years from now. Yeah, you don't have a, you know, a bunch of guys that only played two years. You, you don't have a, a you know, you, you don't have all that raw ability. You have just, you know, guys that have experience. There's a lot of consistency. There's a lot of, you know, knowns about this group and it, it's very talented and I think it'd be smart by this organization to go after it now I understand if people want them to go after a, a wide receiver potentially a running back some defensive players but I mean if you look at what they did in free agency I mean I think they've really tipped their hand they're not going to go after a defensive lineman not right now I don't think so Mario Addison they gave him a three-year deal Quentin Jefferson's in the mix you've got Vernon Butler so I think their defensive line's pretty much set They've traded for Stephon Diggs. I, I, they might get a depth receiver somewhere. I would be surprised if they drafted one super early. Um, just with so much offensive line talent uh, for them to choose from, they're going to be able to, I think, essentially get to take their pick because, yeah, there's going to be some offensive tackles taken early. Some receivers are going to push some other offensive linemen down the board. There's obviously going to be some run on quarterbacks and defensive players. Um, but you know they're going to be in a position at 54 where they could have a very talented offensive lineman in front of them, and if they don't take advantage of that, I mean they're operating in a window right now on a rookie contract with a quarterback that potentially could get them in a position to be one of the better teams in the AFC. It sounds crazy, but when Tom Brady's out of the AFC East, anything can happen. So I think that they should take advantage of this because it's a very good offensive line class. Ross Brown, CoverOne.net. What do you got going on over at the website, and where can people find you on Twitter? Yes, smash the follow button on Twitter, at RussNFLDraft. Today I wrote my draft options piece, got that rolling. I do it every April. Uh, It started with the Bengals. Assuming that they're taking Joe Burrow, I did the piece around them building pieces around him, uh, kind of like the Bills are doing with Josh Allen. And then uh, I've got another piece of three uh, players that are – kind of forgotten about through the draft process so far. So uh, that'll drop tomorrow. So 
Find me on Twitter at RussNFLDraft. You'll get all the content right there for you. All right, once again, you can go follow Russ Brown on Twitter at RussNFLDraft. He might be one of my favorite draft guests that we have on simply because of last year when we asked him about Greg Little. It's it's one of it's it's one of the it's one of the best clips I think ever of that we've done out of our draft series where you asked him because last year we all know Greg Little came into the draft and was highly well not in the draft, start of the college football season, one of the uh one of the top rated offensive tackles in the class and throughout the football season he just like fell down and down and down and by the time the draft rolled around he was projected as a second third round and we had asked Russ about it like what happened with this guy and he just flat out said the answer to your question is because he's not very fucking good that's the question like that's the answer to your question he's not he's not good it, like like I said, the very first thing that you look for in an offensive lineman is hand placement. His hand placement is consistently outside every single time, and he instantly has to go to like reset, recover, and you know he, he does not look like he's very strong. Does not look like he can can do a lot of things, whether it's reach blocking or down blocking. Very little control, more times than not. And he has very little grip strength, which is key to me. Like, Jawan Taylor has some of the best, the best grip strength in the class. Um, and then just when your hand placement is inconsistent and you have mediocre grip strength, I don't see how you can always instantly have to go to recovery mode, and then you can't really recover because you don't have the hand strength to do it. And that was Russ Brown last year on Greg Little, which surprisingly, because we <laughs> just talked with him about <laughs> About Cody, I still remember that play from training camp where it seemed like he was oh, on yeah. roller skates. That was and he just fell down. That was something I noticed. <laughs> that was something I noticed watching the fourth quarter of the Carolina Buffalo game where he got blown up by Voshan Joseph. He just literally, like on roller skates, did a split and fell down, untouched, untouched, trying to get into his pass protection set and just fell down. It was, it was one of the, one of the better things, but. As a draft happened, Carolina took Greg Little one spot before we took Cody Ford. Oh, when they traded up, everyone th- Brandon Bean. You remember the video. The video of Brandon Bean in the war room. When they flashed to him after the, after the Carolina trade up, and they're like, oh, well, that's Cody Ford. That's Ford. You win some, you lose some. We lost him. And then they announced Greg Little, and he's just like, thank God. Pull the trigger. Pull the trigger on this trade. We're going to trade up three spots. And we, we need to get our guy. Uh, it's a lot of fun getting to hang out and have guests like this on the show. People who know their stuff. Because, Chris, like we opened the show with, I'm no professional journalist. You're yeah, <laughs> you're no professional journalist. You don't know a damn thing about the draft. Nope. No. And so rather than try to fake it till I make it, I mean, Chris, that's the reason that I... Don't really spend, I mean, people ask, like, oh, are you going back to training camp? If you're, to, They don't understand. Like, once you go and you've seen it, and you've had the highs that I had and also the lows, I feel like I've already experienced everything I could get out of that. Well, yeah, because it's, it's a lot, for those that don't know, it's a lot easier to get media passes for training camp than it is the regular season. Oh, fuck, the, the regular season, it's incredible. Like, what, it was a bloggers and podcasters don't get access. 
which is why it was such a uh, shock when, you know, you hear that it's how you knew that Travis Wingfield, formerly of the Locked on Dolphins podcast, our routine guest, you knew he was going places when he started getting credentialed for games. That's how you knew, like, hey, you're with a podcast right now. But if you're getting credentials with a podcast, you know that there's, for as, for as much as you put into this, there's something here for you. And he's that 1%, Chris. He's that 1% of guys who just finds a grind and works it out. And now he's a Miami Dolphins employee over there with the Drive Time podcast. Yeah. I listen to it. I listen to it all the time because I he gets players on. He get, He's a funny guy and he knows how to construct an interview. It's... Oh. Yeah, but let, I mean, let's be honest. The only way that you're going to be involved with <laughs> a with a Bills media pass is for a training camp. There's no way you would rather be in the media room for a regular season game than in your seat. Oh, Chris, I'm not built for that. I'm not built for that life. And I guess that's the thing. When you see what it is and you get to see how the sausage is made and you figure out what it entails. Listen, the guys who work in sports journalism... God bless him. I went to school for journalism, and that's what I wanted to do with my life. And after I realized what all it entailed, I kind of took a step back and said, well, i got to find another way. After experiencing everything I did being at training camp, I feel like I'd rather leave a lot of what goes on there up to them. I'll go. I'll hang. Chris, you and I will go this offseason if there is a training camp. I mean, we just saw on Pro Football Talk, they're talking about having a full slate of football this year with fans in the seats. Chris, how happy would you be if we had to if we could attend games, but the mandate was we had to sit six feet away from each other? Yeah. <laughs> how, how happy would you be about that? That would be I would be that'd be fine for me. I mean, I don't know I don't know about you, but you know, that would be less people for you to swear in front of <laughs> and cause a scene. I don't know about scenes. Listen, let's cause a lot of scenes. I cause a moderate amount of scenes. A lot of scenes. Which again I enjoy the sport so much that I feel like being on that side of things, Chris, would take that away from my scene causing on Sundays. Exactly. It's not that, and Chris, let's not pretend like I have an aptitude for that. No, you don't need, you don't have an aptitude for a lot of things, <laughs> especially running backs. Cause next week is our running back podcast with Matt Waldman from the Matt Waldman scouting portfolio. The RSP film room, folks. The running back group is always my favorite. Matt Waldman's one of our favorite guests. Now, Matt Waldman really is one of our favorite guests. I mean, he's he's the reason we know Hugo. <laughs> he's the reason that we've we've made a lot of connections throughout this. And his expertise on the running back position. Chris, it's always a really interesting conversation getting to pick his brain. Because how many guys has he talked about that have panned out the way that he kind of describes that they will, either good or bad? Uh, yeah, I, I remember. I think the first year that we had him on, he said that the best running back in that draft class was Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb was going to outperform Saquon Barkley by draft position because Saquon Barkley is going to be one of the highest picks in this draft. And Nick Chubb is going to be taken in a later round and give them similar performance. And he fell because, and he also had said because of his knee injury. Yep, is why he fell. But his talent alone, I think he said he exceeded that of Ezekiel Elliott, Todd Gurley, higher rated than all those. And I'm not gonna lie to you, but if it wasn't for that injury, and if you look at it, I think that's kind of come to fruition. 
Yeah, Nick Chubb is a beast, and Todd Gurley has fallen off the goddamn map. <laughs> and so with that, folks, I'm really excited about ne- next week's show. I can't wait to get into this. Don't forget to go check out Midwestern Fins Auction on Twitter. Again, great guys that we've gotten to know who are diehards when it comes to supporting charity. I think it's a great time. And if you want to make a straight donation to the charity, we're going to throw a link to the description of the charity in tonight's show write-up. Chris, this might be one of the most succinct podcasts we've ever done. I know. We'll try to do that next week. Man, are we becoming professionals. Yeah, don't touch me, bro. Yeah, I'll cheers you. Don't touch me. Social distancing. Folks, everybody stay safe, everybody stay healthy, and we will see you back here next week. But we got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That was Russ Brown. And this has been the Rock Pile Report. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.